Welcome to episode 57 of The Photo Show. Our guest today is Emil Askey. Before we get into that, I wanted to mention that a lot of our former guests are doing some great things. Imbal Abergil uh, has been um, out promoting her book, Next of Kin. She was at the Bronx Doc Center talking to Michael Camber and uh, actually a bunch of other venues. Kai, did you, did you, were you able to make any of those? I wasn't able to make uh, anything beyond um... I'm ashamed I'm ashamed to say I did not go to any of the other ones I was only at the one that she had that was at uh, the Penumbra Foundation right when we were at the Penumbra Foundation yes and and I spoke to Imbal and she's been having a great time promoting her book uh, Lisa Rivera with BJ Lillis has been you know traveling around with her beautiful boy show and they were just at Miami actually they are now Pulse Miami Art Fair I think that might be wrapping up soon but uh, you could check that out uh, Tony Chirinos, another former guest, is in Miami at Space Mountain, Miami. He's in a show called Hope and Reality. Uh, I think that show uh, has um, the work he did in the morgue and some maybe some of the hospital work as well. Yep, I believe that from the from the screenshots or the, that he sent out, I believe that's what he's showing. Yeah, and uh, Haywire Press, run by Giancarlo T. Roma is selling copies of Lee Friedlander's latest book, Chainlink, signed copies. Yeah, that book is amazing. I, I just sent it out on Instagram a couple of days ago, just letting everyone know how inspiring that book is. Mm-hmm. Not, not inspiring in the sense that you want to run out and uh, photograph Chainlink fences, but inspiring in the sense that it makes you just want to go out and look at the world with your camera. Yeah, yep. I saw you posted that. Uh, And then uh, last but not least, Kathy Shore's show, Shot. That is hard to say. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, We just wrapped that up at the James Kearney Campus Gallery, uh, the gallery that I run. Uh, And and actually, the show will run a bit into January. Kathy was very generous in allowing me to keep the show up. And so people who email me want to come see the show, uh, I'll open up the gallery for them. And then we're, we're working on our next show with Jen Davis. Oh, amazing. I know. It's like all yeah. all our former guests and, and we're able to do great things with them and they're doing great things. And so, yeah, it's it's been a, a great run. Uh, and if this is our last show of the year, it's been a great year. Yeah, excellent. Yeah. And so, Kai, you were able to go to MoMA to see the uh, retrospective on Stephen Shore. Yeah, it was there for uh, the opening, which was kind of mobbed and crazy, but I got to see a lot of good people. And uh, it's a real retrospective in the sense that you walk in the door and there's black and white photographs that he made, you know, when he was a kid, all the way up to uh, the current things on his Instagram feed. So it's just (laughs) decades and decades of work. So if you do go to MoMA to see it, I recommend scheduling a lot of time because it takes a while to get through the show. Like just when you think... Ah, I've seen a lot of stuff. Then you realize there's a hmm. whole other room. It's incredible. It sounds like it might need more than one visit. Easily. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> the next day, there was uh, one of the MoMA uh, forums on contemporary photography uh, had also hosted Stephen. And uh, the topic was talking about uh, photography education and how it's changed over the years because he's obviously been teaching at Bard College for 30 plus years and a lot of great photographers have gone through that program and uh, one thing that he wanted to make a special point of which I thought resonated really well with us and probably with our listeners was he talked about how the way he's planned for and, and plans to have photography education be still critical there is that he's 
purchased enough cameras, physical cameras, so that students can borrow a 35 millimeter SLR, they can borrow a medium format camera, they can borrow a four by five camera, and that they're still getting like the hands-on mm. uh, use with the medium and, and, you know, and that they're providing that as a, a service. That's and great. So yeah. Yeah, certainly. I think that's pedagogically speaking, really important. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we've talked about this. I'm, I'm, I plan on purchasing a lot more film cameras so my students can borrow those. We already loan uh, digital cameras at our program and uh, it's it's a great way to go. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. don't make money the obstacle, you know, for students who want to learn photography. Yeah. yeah, and just you know, of course, the the only I believe really the only film camera consistently being made today is a Leica. So you can't expect your students to run out and buy a new <laughs> Leica. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So our guest is Emil Askey, and we had a, a great conversation. And we talk about race and identity and how that plays into work, and you know his relationship with his father and that how how that affected him in grad school. And you know, just uh, you guys had some uh, some things in common, places you've lived. Yeah. Although uh, he he comes from Australia, which is a place that I still want to get to, but we got to talk about Austin, Texas, which is a touch point. And, uh, and of course, we're now both in Brooklyn. And uh, Emil has uh, been an adjunct faculty at Columbia University teaching Photo One for us. So also have that. Yeah. All right, everyone. Enjoy the show and we'll talk soon. Take a video of you uh, in like Adobe's putting it out, and oh no, they can take a sound recording and then oh yeah, from you talking for like five minutes, they can make your voice, make your voice. Yeah, yeah, really. And then there's like a video one where they can, and then they can animate your face speaking. I'm sure, right? That's yeah. that so, is so, all we need. Radio <laughs> Lab episode. I'm like, okay, well, nothing's one, nothing's real anymore. One more part of our souls to steal. <laughs> I mean, there are between face ID, fingerprint recognition, retinal ID, and voice recognition. Meh, you can pretty much be duplicated. We're done for. Yeah. <laughs> and all, and we're all on DNA registries. Yeah. <laughs> Do you remember uh, that TV show Max Headroom? And like the guy went went on to like promote Coca Cola for a while. It was like the, just the, it was just a, a, a head in a box with a background moving around. And he would kind of it, speak in a, uh, a jilted it, way because he was supposed to be computer generated. It was oh. very early was form 80s. of... Uh, yeah, late 80s, like yeah. computer generated stuff. Yeah. But anyways, the whole idea of that show and why there was like people were trying to kill each other was that you could have politicians in a box and make them say whatever you wanted to. And of course, you know, that's... Wait, well, you can definitely do that now. Right. Not that you need to, given the current politicians, but anyways. <laughs> but Emil doesn't care about any of this because he wasn't born in this country and he hopes we all go I to hell. I was born in this country. Ah, that's right. I always get that wrong. <laughs> Just barely, right? Just, Just like barely. Yeah. In Inglewood, California. Inglewood, California. Right next to the... I have notes. <laughs> right, yeah, right next, next to the uh, Great Western Forum, which... I don't. I think it still exists. What is that? The Great Western Forum, the Lakers Showtime Lakers Stadium, before they moved to Staples Center. So, oh, but my hospital doesn't exist anymore. That has. Been, oh, where you were born? Yeah, which uh -huh. is weird. Mm. Hollowed ground. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> my hospital is still there on the island of Kauai, but it used to have no air conditioning. It was just like open windows and very casual. Now it's sort of modern looking last time I saw it. So. Mm. Uh, I don't know exactly how to jump in, but I think just because your your biography is interesting as far as like everything about your background, I thought might as well just start with that because it also explain your Brooklyn accent and everything else, right? <laughs> Do I have one? <laughs> no. no. All right. Not at all. No. No, but our last guest had a serious one, so we were like, we're going for all possible accents. All right. Well, it depends on no, when I'm, this comes I'm, out. I'm not sure what order I'm releasing, so uh, you, I see. you well, might hear that next or... You may have heard it already. There you go. <laughs> Past, present, future. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, let's see. So I was born in uh, Inglewood, California in uh, 1982 to a um, Macedonian, Australian mother and uh, African-American father. My dad was a um, musical director and composer for Motown um, and performed, from, performed with them from like the mid-50s or early 60s until till we moved to Australia so my mom and I my, my, my mom gave my dad an ultimatum to retire pretty much <laughs> and uh, she's like I'm not raising my son by myself and uh, and um, moved me we, we went to Australia and then my dad came like a year later so um, did, they, did they meet in Australia or yeah okay so <laughs> that's a funny one my mom was at a at a Dinah Ross and the Supremes concert and my dad was the musical director for Dinah Ross at that time. Mm. And she was at the concert, my dad was on stage. And then there was supposed to be a limousine that was supposed to show up to pick up the band and um, to pick up the band and my dad and they never showed up. And my mom and her cousin drove past in a van. And I think my mom's cousin, Mari, was like, you guys need a ride. And that's how they met. <laughs> wow. <laughs> um, so they, they like dated back and forth. Across, across the Pacific. I think my dad was living in Philly at that time. And so my, he'd fly over, over to Australia. My mom would fly to America back and forth for like eight years or something. And then my, my, That's my mom- That's intense in the 70s. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And I think at a point my mom gave my dad another ultimatum and was like, well, <laughs> You can marry me or that's it. I'm not talking anymore. Or take one more flight. (laughs) Exactly. So, yeah. So she moved over here, I think, in uh, 79 or something and met my dad. As she told her, I might be wrong about this, but she she met him in Philly and they moved to Los Angeles together Mm. and then got married in Texas a year later and then I was born. So, yeah. And then she's like, okay, this uh, isn't working out in Inglewood. Let's get back to Australia. Yeah, well, I forget what... My brother told me some stuff I probably shouldn't say on a podcast. (laughs) (laughs) No, I think think, um, the way she described it, or she tells me about it now, I was just this other person. You know, I wasn't... I wasn't... It's kind kind of tragic if you think about it, but she said I wasn't black enough to go to a public school in LA at the time well the public schools that were in our area and I wasn't wide enough to go to a private school so Mm, she was worried yeah Yeah, so she was she was like really worried about um like I think gang violence in LA that's like the height of gang violence sort of the mid 80s um going into the 90s um and so she was just like yeah I don't want him to grow up over here um and yeah moved me to Australia where you know very different very, very different to LA at that time, but where in Australia was that? Melbourne. So, well, I grew up um, about forty-five minutes from the city in this um, 
little suburb called Seaford, which um, no one knows Seaford, but they know the, the next town over, Frankston. So usually you say, I'm from Frankston. People will make a face and go, ooh, and then, then I'll go, <laughs> no, 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 yeah, really sorry. Seaford. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it, it, that, that town had a history of uh, uh, serial killings and uh, heroin addiction. So <laughs> oh, wow. Oh, wow. <laughs> There's a, what's that podcast called? Case File. This, this guy with a really heavy like Queensland Australian accent he just pretty much reads Wikipedia Wikipedia pages about murders and stuff and so he's talked about the Frankston um the Frankston serial killer which was in that was like the early 90s and that was like like I lived like maybe 10 minute drive from our house lived next door to family friends of ours and stuff and then it's like like my my first grade teacher's wife uh not wife uh niece was murdered and they never found any of that but there was all that kind of stuff there's like this real seedy underbelly to yeah. um so from Englewood mm-hmm. to the seedy part of the outskirts of Melbourne yeah 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 but you know I loved it out there I grew up on the beach and had my had my family my um two cousins that lived around the corner from us that were kind of like my older brothers and yeah, there's a. But now Australia a isn't exactly race neutral, right? So were there not? There wasn't any issues going back there that your mother was worried about, or? Yeah, I mean it's, it's, it's weird because the way I usually describe it, Australia is like casually racist, <laughs> but <laughs> or maybe it's just that the it's a slightly newer country than the United States is. There's obviously all kinds of history of, of like, especially directed towards um, indigenous people, um, stolen generation, um, yeah, all that stuff. But I think it, because it was a fairly new country, there was a lot of immigration and the way it was started. So, you know, it would just sort of bounce around. Like when my mom was, when my mom was young, I think, you know, Vietnamese people were the target because they were coming over from fleeing Vietnam, fleeing the war there and coming over. So I was like, oh, the Vietnamese. Right, and then the new, the new immigrants. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, so when she was young, I think like when my, when my grandfather had come over like in uh, between World War One and World War Two, From Macedonia? From, yeah, from, yeah, Macedonia. Well, from, as he says, he's, he's not, he's Macedonian, but they're not from the country. He's from Greece. But he's not Greek. But now apparently he says he's Greek. I don't know. But um, it's from they're from the region of northern Greece. that's called Macedonia. But yeah, so like you know, the, like that between wars, a lot of people came over from Europe, from um, the Mediterranean, Italy, Greece. So then they were the they were the worst people at that time. Before that, it was the Chinese, and you know, and the gold. And so it just like cycles over from one group to the next. So I was kind of this like in between thing where. I guess I grew up over there and I, people saw me as being black. They did. Yeah. But then here, I'm like anything. I'm like everything else. Like, <laughs> I get what are you a lot, which is fun. But Did you get some sort of uh, props for having been in America? I mean, was that useful at all? Like, hey, I was born yeah. in California, blah, blah, yeah, blah. There is these a, waves. Yeah, I saw real waves or something. Something like that. Like that. <laughs> I mean, but uh, there is, yeah, I think there was... There is sort of an there was always an appreciation of American culture there, and I think because my dad was involved in music and stuff, people kind of like revered him. Like, oh, he's he's a celebrity down there. He wasn't a celebrity here, of course, although he had some pretty notable achievements in music. But sort of, I I guess, sort of things that maybe even going, but like if if, uh, I think about like my grandfather was stationed there. My grandfather on my father's side of the family was stationed in far north Queensland during World War II. And 
as people describe it, like the African American troops were like celebrities over there. Everyone loved mm. them, you know, which maybe has some other some other kind of connection I'm not sure about. But so I don't know. So I was sort of in this like in between place of like looking like some people, not looking like other people, and just trying to I don't know, I guess place myself. But as I got as I got older, I, I sort of embraced hip hop culture and got teased a lot for that because all the like surfy kids and in Melbourne, we're like, oh, this is homeboy. And I'm like, I'm just, I just like Wu-Tang Clan and, and Notorious B.O.G. And I was like, you know, 13, 14. Like, the own, like me and maybe two of my friends were into rap music at that time. And so I like, I'd, I'd come over here and to visit family and come back with like this new wardrobe. Like at one point I was like doing the whole like LA sort of gang member aesthetic of like Dickies and color coordination. And then eventually I was wearing like FUBU and stuff. Oh, yeah. And um, so that was like very, very foreign to some people. Very Fresh Prince uh, style. <laughs> yeah, yeah, not, yeah, that was weird because like, that that show was on TV a lot in Australia, and so oh, I think when I was younger, like the the um, certainly even like the surfing the surfing aesthetic wasn't too far off of that, like with uh-huh. bright colors and patterns and stuff. But yeah, as I as I got older, you know, mm. it's sort of a Australia's like a funny conservative place sometimes. It's then also very people are generally I would say generally very open and accepting of just about anything. It's kind of like mm-hmm. maybe libertarian in that sense, just like yeah, mind was- your own business sort of thing. But that's that shifts and changes, you know. I was just listening to a panel talk in uh, the Arts Council of Princeton, and Annie Hogan was there, and I think she was implying that things, um, in terms of uh, relations, at least with uh, the indigenous people, the, the 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 native people of Australia, are getting somewhat better, or they're really starting to address it more in a better way. There's a a new kind of a I don't uh, I don't want to get it wrong, but it's a, almost like a pledge that you take where you honor. The people who came before you, before uh, at an event or a function or a ceremony. Yeah, and that's uh, like we've we, as I say, like I've done it. But um, <laughs> I'd say the country as a whole has tried to embrace the indigenous heritage, probably more so than here. You know, the, the monuments, the names of the monuments change. Like Ayers Rock is now called Uluru. Um, a lot of the national parks sort of revert to indigenous names, and there's a lot, like, a lot of education about the pre-colonial history of the country but with that said like the entire history of indigenous people was disrupted by european settlement because of the way that they sort of revere the land and the landscape that you know you build a road through a through a landscape and that completely alters the the history right so and and with that said it's like yeah there's these sort of acknowledgements of indigenous people by the government but then I mean, so many people are living in like third world conditions. Kind of like too little, too late in a way. Yeah, well, it's just this, it's pretty, it's pretty ugly. I'd say it's one of the, maybe next to the, you know, jailing of um, asylum seekers and refugees on -hmm. on, on prison islands and stuff. Mm -hmm. It's probably like the worst thing. Certainly one of the real like black um, marks on Australia. Right. And you know it's funny because I, you know, I I, I dated a, a girl from um, who was from rural Victoria, the kind of the outback, and I remember going to a party with her, and everyone was looking at me and like, what? And they thought she'd brought an Aboriginal guy, 
to the party and everyone and then they found out oh he's she she said oh he's a, he's actually american <laughs> like there's nothing american about me I'm like, <laughs> right. at that point and everyone just except, like, oh, except your wardrobe maybe right yeah, yeah yeah i think at that point i was doing more had a more of a skater aesthetic but um <laughs> Yeah, but uh, then they, they, they change, like, oh, are you from America? Tell us about that. Wait. And, you know, you say, well, my dad's from Texas, blah, blah, blah. And I, people would get really excited about that. But, but you had you lived most of your life there. Yeah. Yeah. From four till four till 20, well, just before my 24th birthday. Yeah. So better part of 20 years almost. Yeah. yeah. And uh, <clears throat> when Emil and I first met, we started bonding over... Uh, Skating. Australia oh. as seen through the lens of YouTube. So, uh, like, Emil turned me on to these, this crazy guy who was, like, hunting with snakes, you know, throwing <laughs> Andrew, snakes into pictures. Andrew Uckles. <laughs> <laughs> like a bow and arrow snake? What? No, 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 no. Like, he, would, he would hunt hunt with snakes, uh-huh. using snakes to catch other things. Yeah, uh-huh. he puts the snake down in there in the hole, and then it would chase out the other thing into a net that he'd put over the hole. So, uh, yeah, the but, best one, he he, um, <laughs> he finds an emu, an emu carcass um, on oh, the side yes. of a road, and and um, he puts it on top of himself, and he tries to catch a kangaroo dressed as an emu. <laughs> Terrific, but he, he jumps up and this kangaroo goes past him and he grabs it by the tail and it's just like unhappy. Oh, it's, yeah, as it would it be. Easily kill him, but yeah, yeah, he let it go. But it's just <laughs> you look at this guy and he's wearing he's got a shirt on, he's wearing shorts, and if you know they do educate you pretty good in Australia about protecting yourself from snakes and spiders is like you don't wear shorts in the bush because you know, that's how you get bitten by a tiger snake or right, well, something the, and the big thing everybody says is everything in australia will kill you everything is poisonous yeah more or less i mean but i've come closer to dying more here than, ah. than there from like rock slides and rattlesnakes and <laughs> car crashes so yeah you know i guess yeah. everywhere's dangerous in some way but there's certainly you know you hear you know there's like mythical creatures like there's the Irukandji jellyfish that's this little little tiny like thumbnail sized jellyfish that if it stings you you die in 20 minutes so like uh, even if someone pees on you it doesn't matter i guess (laughs) yeah so like that that ain't apparently that's not working but uh then there's like you know so you just you're always like around these things like i mean i when i grew up uh we'd go to new south wales uh, when my dad would be performing in the jazz festival or something, we go to the beach and there's like blue bottle jellyfish and like uh, box jellyfish all over the beach. You're like, oh, we don't have those in Victoria. I can't uh, swim here. But <laughs> yeah, but you know, those, those kind of things. And then the hideously giant spiders and stuff. But you know, you learn to work around it. <laughs> yeah, it's just part of the environment. Yeah, exactly. So then I assume you went to undergrad while you were still there? Yep. I At- went to... Um, RMIT University in in Melbourne, and was photography starting to enter in the picture at that point, or uh, before yet? then? I mean, so I I kind of um, there's a, a picture I show in some of my slideshows when I uh, start the semester, and this is this picture of me holding a little point and shoot camera when I was maybe in fifth grade. My family's going back and forth between australia and the u.s visiting family we traveled a lot and so there was always like a camera around um we had like a canon uh slr point and shoot and um so we were like shooting film and stuff and my memento, dad always had photos. mementos from yeah. the travels right it was always, always like family and everything yeah, else. like shoe boxes full of prints my mom threw the negatives out but uh, which, oh. uh but uh shoe boxes and photo albums and stuff 
And so I got, I think the first time I did photography was like maybe, maybe eighth grade um, in high school. So yeah, and we, we just did um, black and white photography. I think, I don't even remember if I, I know we, I feel, feel like we took pictures at school with our art teacher's camera. And then she developed our film and then we went to the darkroom and made prints and we did things like, we were like solarizing and doing bar relief and weaving our pictures together and stuff like that. So doing this like- Very crafty. Of, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I just, at, at that point, I think we had a photography class maybe in ninth grade and 10th grade. It was just like in the darkroom. I think in, I think in 10th grade, maybe that was 11th grade, 10th or 11th grade, we, the school built a new darkroom and we had this like really- Pretty nice darkroom for a high school. And then I was basically just taking art classes and negotiated with my teachers to just do photography. I think in 12th grade, I ended up doing a, because we didn't have a photography curriculum, I ended up doing this, um, like a continuing ed class in the city. So my mom would drive me after school into the city and I'd go to this one class where I was like, you know, I was like 17, but with all these adults taking, um, taking a photography class and stuff. And then a couple people my age and yeah, then fell into, uh, I was wanted to be a marine biologist at that point or a, a animal scientist to do like field research on, on animals or something. And so I applied to undergrad for that, got accepted. Then I think the pro- I wanted to, what was the program called? It's called conservation biology and ecology. And there was this one program that you, you actually did field research and they had on the campus, they had like, um, they had live animals, so you could go to the snake enclosure. I think they specialized in snakes, so you could go to the snake enclosure and like study snakes and mm. stuff. And I was like, oh, that's what I want to do. And yeah, then I changed my mind really quickly and <laughs> basically took a gap year between high school and, and my first year undergrad. And I did a um, six-month photography certificate with a master, what was it, master photography? He's like a British, British journal of photography, master photographer and wedding photography. Mm. And he lived next door to pretty much like across the street from us where I grew up. So I'd like ended up being his like assistant a couple times. And then I applied back to school and I was like, oh, you know, I really want to do photography, but I was really enamored with the technical aspect of it. So I ended up doing at that time, I thought art was kind of a joke, probably because I just grew up in this like cultural void and in, in the suburbs. Although there was art around, but it seemed sort of, I don't know, I guess Australia kind of pushes like a science and technology. Aptitude curriculum. The yeah, whole thing. yeah, I'd say so. Like either that or business. So at the time, there was a program at RMIT that was in um, scientific and industrial photography. So I thought, oh, well, I'll do that. And that's how I'll do my scientific research of animals i'll be like an underwater photographer or something like that um i kind of did the same thing i when i i started out as an engineer and then i went to photography but i still loved science and Mm -hmm. i ended up working almost 18 years at a science stock photo agency after uh, my undergrad yeah that's cool which one it's called Fundamental Photographs. Still around, a small agency in the Lower East Side of New oh, York. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And what were you photographing, like all through high school and stuff? Do you remember? Was it like friends uh, and stuff? Or skateboarding. You... Yeah. Uh, right. My friend who was rollerblading, like I'd go to the skate park and photograph that. I was photographing. Um, I'd like started going to punk shows when I was probably in uh, maybe eleventh grade. My friend, my, well, actually, when, when one of my friends got a car, we started driving to shows and going to punk shows and stuff. So I'd photograph bands skateboarding 
and then landscapes because I was like on the beach watching sunsets. I'm like, yeah, I'll just photograph <laughs> this. This is great. Um, <laughs> yeah, and then and then that became you know that's that's kind of where I started out in in undergrad, and then you know we were getting introduced to like forensic photography and biomedical imaging and doing weird. Um, lighting setups like Shalarian photography oh, where yeah. you uh, yeah, 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 yeah. photograph like heat and change in refractive index right. and stuff like that. <laughs> so we were doing like physics classes between our photography classes, mm-hmm. but then doing like film classes and stuff like that. So it's like, this really pretty interesting curriculum where we were, you know, building electronics, building our own lighting equipment, but then doing like really technical fundamentals and, you know. Did the um, sort of industrial science aspect of it make it an easier sell for your parents no they didn't care they would just they would just like i think and that came from my dad a lot because he was in a creative business right yeah Yeah. well he'd he'd started out he wanted to be a football player as he described but he was you know he was like six foot tall not like exceptionally athletic you know (laughs) and i think he kept getting in trouble at school and what did he say his his um i think his music teacher basically was like we can kick you out of school you can join the band and he's like, I don't want to join the band. And he, he got a, was given a trumpet and then um, fell, into, fell into that and made a career out of music. So they were always just like, do whatever you want, you know, which I don't know. There's some, if I look back on them, like there's some drawbacks on that for sure. Um, I had no structure, mommy and daddy. <laughs> yeah, too much. Yeah, a little too much freedom. But at the same time, I mean, that's a pretty, pretty ideal way to, mm. to grow up. I really really lucky in that way so yeah they were just like i and i'd been doing it they bought me a camera and i'd been taking pictures and that's just what i did so they they could see that it was something i cared about and that i that i did a lot and so anytime i anytime i had something like that they were pretty supportive um nice yeah i mean it's funny too because i was going to be a basketball player as well but uh, did did you mention what your father ended up doing then when you moved to australia uh he got into education for the most part so he was um teaching high school bands and um doing like private tutoring for music students but he would get you know he'd get called up from all the high school mostly high school and some of the um one of the the victorian college of the arts which is a an art school that's connected to the university of melbourne yeah, he's just just continued performing. So he sort of had this second life of of working in music, and which had sort of come out of um, when he was living in LA in the I guess the mid seventies, or he was like back and forth to LA. And then when I was growing up, he was running these like youth music groups or big bands for people who went on to perform for just about anybody. Like mm. like the drummer Clayton Cameron was one of his students, and um, who's played with like. He's Tony Bennett's drummer, may still be Tony Bennett's drummer. Hmm. Uh, then like uh, people who are a lot of percussionists, weirdly enough, but then guitar players and musicians who became like session musicians or live musicians with a lot of performing acts. So he basically just like picked that up again in Australia. I would also think that uh, when people are traveling and going on the road, they're like, well, we're going all the way to Australia. Do we bring the whole band or do we just try, maybe we can find a, drum, a local drummer or a local this yeah. or a local that, right? So that helps the, the yeah. local talent get be able to play with all these other groups certainly yeah yeah so you're, you're in this technical rmit you're in this technical did you, did you make it all four years or did you did you well three years it's a three-year program yeah. you can do like a three-year program and then you can do an honors year but they, they like they don't have like a foundation year so you kind of just get thrown straight into the curriculum um but yeah i i made it through and i had some really good internships that i did one doing um 
doing uh, more or less collections photography at the Museum of Victoria, mm. um, where I basically just like, I called up the head of the department, this guy, John Broomfield, and I was like, hey, uh, my, my uh, Gail from RMIT, he, he told me to call you, and uh, can I have can I do an internship there? He's like, yeah, sure, whatever. And so, but it's funny, like the, like the first day I got there, they're like, have you ever printed glass negatives? And I'm like, no. And like, have you made black and white prints? I'm like, yeah. And they're like, okay, go up here and do this. And they gave me like a stack of glass negatives. Just of, don't um, drop them and you'll be fine. Yeah, of uh, photos of indigenous Australians, which are pretty, wow. pretty cool. Because um, you can't show stuff like that. Really, that museum actually got in trouble for displaying uh, photographs of deceased people, deceased Indigenous people, because it's like really, um, it's a really bad thing a to taboo, do. Taboo, yeah. Yeah, and I was like, oh, I wonder if those are some of the prints I made. But um, mm. I ended up doing that, and uh, I also did probably my favorite job I've ever had. Uh, I worked at this company called AutoLive, and we they're an engineering engineering company that did automotive safety products. So they manufactured airbags, seat belts. Uh, seats, they would test seats for the different auto companies. And so I worked with these two guys, one guy who was like, well, actually both of them were graduates of my program, Peter and, and Feroz. And we'd set up the high-speed phantom cameras and film uh, cars being crashed into walls. Oh, <laughs> nice. awesome. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they gave me, they like brought me on as an employee um, mm. while I was in school for my entire third year of school and so i'd go up there one day a week i actually ran the 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 tests the test track for like a week when both of them were on on vacation and stuff (laughs) you know as i'm like 21 21 and like running an engineering like an engineering testing department and stuff and yeah it was really fun um so i sort of had i'm like oh wow there's all this great stuff that i can do and then get out of school and it's like oh that's right. There's only like 10 jobs in all of Australia for <laughs> this kind of photography. And so, yeah. And I was in the wilderness for a while. So then when do you uh, decide to come here to New York? Um, I was basically drinking a lot and working in a supermarket and playing drums in a bunch of metal bands, which was really fun, to be honest. I mean, I, I tell that people ask me that question, like, why'd you come here? I was like, well, you know, I was surfing and playing and playing music and i had a like job at a liquor store that paid me like 25 dollars an hour and i was like and but it it i felt like i was letting my family down um because they'd invested you know like they'd supported me to become a photographer and i was just like not doing that so i i traveled over here with my dad it was like one of many times I dabbled in wanting to move here. Like when I was in high school, I wanted to come and play basketball over here and got really close and then backed away from it and whatever. Um, you were playing in Australia? Yeah, yeah, yeah. In like the equivalent of the AAU. They have, they have leagues that are called representative leagues. But um, yeah. I guess just for the record, since our listeners won't know, how tall are you? I'm very tall. I'm six, <laughs> six foot seven. Yeah. Okay. And I've been this tall since I was 14. So. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So I've always been really tall. Yeah. I came over here with my dad just on a, I hadn't been to the US for maybe eight or nine years at that point. And um, just sort of traveling around. And I, I think I saw there was like a couple of photo jobs at museums in LA. And I was like, oh. I could come here. It just sort of clicked in my head. And I, I like fell in love with a girl. <laughs> and, <it was> like, <laughs> and then basically just got back to Australia from this trip and uh, had $400 in the bank. I was like, 
screw it, I'm moving to America. And I, and I, my, my parents helped me buy a ticket, a one-way ticket over here. And I just like packed up all my stuff and wow. hopped on a plane and moved in with my sister. And yeah, and then things just kind of fell into place. I got... It was Where was this though? In Los Angeles. Okay. So weirdly enough, I moved back into the house that I lived in when I was a little kid. So my sister had... Um, my dad basically had my sister living, my sister had lived there since we left and I moved back in there and like moved into their old bedroom, my mom and dad's old bedroom, which was really funny. Your sister was still in her old bedroom? <laughs> no, my sister, oh. that's another, there's a, there's a tangent. My, my, my siblings, my sister and my brother are significantly older than me. I won't out how old they are. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's fine. They're, uh, my dad was married uh, before he married my mom and so uh, my dad's my dad my dad was uh, 89 when he passed away so oh. that was a couple of years ago but um so he was you know significantly well, like what 27 years older than my mom or something my siblings are like older than me <laughs> 30 30 something you don't have to say it 31 <laughs> ah, ah, screw them. 30 what's that, 30 31 and 33 years older than me mm-hmm. so they have kids that are they have kids that are older than me right. and then I have kids that are my age too so I have this like weird sort mm-hmm. of family dynamic but mm-hmm. yeah but I was living with my sister in, in Los Angeles and um when I before I'd moved over I'd seen this job at the Getty the Getty Museum and, I was, and it was for a what was the job imaging technician and I think every job that I'd had at that point was an imaging technician photo technician something like that <laughs> So I was like, ah, yeah, I'll do that. And um, I applied for it and got a, I got a phone interview and I was so excited that I ended up, um, my my future boss, he's like, oh, is this a good time to talk? And and, um, I was walking down the street in LA and I'm like, yeah, yeah, this is fine. And I'm I'm like freaking out. So I guess I had this like manic energy on the phone and, and he, it didn't go over so well, I guess. <laughs> but then I, I looked up his email just on Google or something, <laughs> and found his email. I was like, "What was his name? Rand? Rad? Rand? Because <laughs> I, I couldn't quite hear what his name was, and I was like, "I think that's Brian." And I was like, <laughs> kept looking up, and I found him. And so I sent him an email. I was like, "Oh, thanks so much. That was really important. Like, I just moved here, and it's it sort of feels good to have someone call you up and." express interest in you and he took that really well and they'd rejected me for the job and so he went to HR I was like oh I gotta I gotta at least interview this guy and I showed up like a week later or something in in a suit and the human resources was really mad at him because they had to like re-interview other candidates or something that they'd rejected something funny like that because they gave you another shot they had to give everyone another shot yeah exactly so but I like showed up in a suit and he was impressed by that. He's like, you know, the last person that came in. And it, I don't know if you've been to the Getty. It's this, you know, yeah. this like postmodern palace on top yeah. of a Castle hill. on a hill, yeah. Yeah, it's incredible. And he's like, yeah, people showed up in like a t-shirt and jeans and stuff. And I'm like, well, that's, well, that's weird, you know. <laughs> um, yeah, and, and then I got a call back and ended up working there for a little while. And um, doing, what was I doing? Uh is the department I was working in worked with um, cultural heritage conservation. So specifically architecture or built, as they call it, built heritage. So For LA, that means like liquor stores and yeah. uh, <laughs> well, no, LA, anything with a facade. Yeah, I mean, LA, it's like, it's pretty interesting. It's like no, 
the Cinerama Dome or um, the Town Hall building or the Bradbury building or um, you'd, we'd go to these housing developments out in the, in the valley that were built by some particular architecture architect where all the houses are this like one particular design and they're not found like that anywhere else and it's it's sort of weird there's like move front i think frank gary buildings and then like old frank gary buildings and then like frank lloyd wright buildings and then just different things that had some significance um but a lot of the projects that i was involved in we had conservators that were working on the Miguel grottos in china uh mosaics like ancient roman mosaics in tunisia and greece and um turkey things like that rock paintings just this this is a bit of a thread i'm realizing now is it because your current job one of your current jobs uh is is related in a way right like you want to talk about what you're doing yeah um so i'm at the princeton university art museum in addition to teaching and i do um more or less i'm What's my title? Visual Resources Imaging Specialist. I'm the virus, as they call me. <laughs> but yeah, I do. I mostly. So you've moved up from technician to specialist. Yeah, I have four four words in my title, which is great. But I I, I work with another photographer there, um, Jeff Evans, and and we do pretty much documentation of artwork. Princeton has this pretty incredible collection of photography like they have minor white's entire archive they have Mm. ruth bernhardt's entire archive clarence white who i keep calling charles white because i get him confused with someone else and they're just like fun pictures on your instagram account of you like holding like the you know these precious negatives and things like that amazing yeah i've been photographing minor whites and negatives like and not it's like the the b-roll the b-real stuff you know (laughs) that's like just random 35 mil stuff that he shot color film that he shot mm-hmm. um which is really amazing but it's so cool to actually like i can't think of other than looking at students work i can't think of too many opportunities where you get to see someone's process like that mm-hmm. but then not only that i go from the negatives to the print and just you know i'll photograph 50 different iterations of the same print or that i'll come back to a negative that i shot and go oh there's the print for it and i look at the negative I'm like this negative's junk but then you see this print that comes out of it and it's like a you know it's a throwaway print but then you're like wow hmm. so it's hard to you know part of it is very like i'm i'm like part man part copy stand at this point so right. it's like very very like heavily process oriented but sort of you do get a bit of a kick out of just looking at something really cool like that, but then I have to like photograph like 700 prints or something. No, how many have I done in a day? Maybe most I've done is like 200 prints in a day, Mm. but then negatives I'll be shoot. I'll I'll shoot like 700 negatives in a day or something like that. So it's sort of weird entering into this one. I feel like I'm entering into minor white's consciousness and like, Oh, yeah, I, I think like him. Yeah, that, this is cool. Like, I should do this. But the billowing curtain. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, um, you'll have to see if that starts uh, affecting your photography. Uh, it totally has. Oh. It totally has. I mean, just in the the approach to shooting, like he's you're looking at these rolls of film, and it's like he's almost shooting like he was using a cell phone. Basically, he's like taking pictures of absolutely everything, roll after roll after roll. And it's just that that sort of continuous documentation of everything around him. But then you sort of see a little bit into his life and you start to connect the dots. Like I've been able to look at all of his like uh, male nudes and you really see the relationship to the landscape in those. And so you sort of see the way that he photographs rocks and you're like, oh, that looks just like a man's body. 
and then you, you like bounce back and forth on those things. So it's it's pretty cool. And it's just, you know, it, it's funny because it's like I've come sort of full circle from going into undergrad and and being like, oh yeah, I'm going to have this great, look at this great career in technical photography. And then I end up doing that, you know, <laughs> 15 years later, pretty much after developing this appreciation for, you know, fine art and stuff that's just sort of grown from being in LA and being mm. in New York and stuff. And um, yeah, so I think that's the part of the story that we probably should jump into since we haven't got to it yet. Is you're, you went from uh, hip hop surfer punk in Australia thinking art was dumb and then next thing you know you're working at the Getty and the next thing you know at some point you wind up going to grad school and so where where did photography start getting a more serious uh, role for you like as a creative medium well I was I was working at the when I moved to New York in uh, 2008 I left my job at the Getty and Did you break up with the girl? No, I met a different girl and I moved here with her. So I'm a, you know, I'm a, I'm a lover. (laughs) He's married now. I just want to married to someone else, but, (laughs) um, but, uh, yeah, I, um, I ended up working at the Parsons School of Design in the photography department there as a technician and, um, you know, being around creative people all the time and, and sort of looking at. I'm like working in photography, but not really taking pictures. And then I'm just surrounded by all the gear that they have there, which is pretty, pretty amazing. I'm like, I should use this stuff. But then a lot of my coworkers um, were educators or working as commercial photographers or working as, um, you know, did art photography and stuff. So sort of being around people and even like taking stock of everything that I'd been doing in my life, like. I was into music that was more performative, you know, even surfing and, and I don't know, basketball in some way and everything I was sort of interested in. I, I always looked at it as having this like poetic sort of artistic motion to it. So I sort of treated playing basketball as like a, all about like fluidity and form and movement and stuff. And so, but I, I started to like, you know, sitting here, you know, sitting in New York and sort of just watching things and seeing how things sort of move and unfold in front of me. It's like, man, I should be taking pictures. And then I just, I don't know, started taking more photos and ended up in a grad program somehow. So <laughs> he told me that I was doing, I mean, and that came from, that came from, um, I was, you know, surrounded by some really amazing faculty at Parsons that I just, you know, just worked with. I was making prints for them and um, like Miranda Lichtenstein, but, you know, just sort of forming relationships with all these great people and just sort of thinking of what else I can be doing beyond just going to work every day and sort of finding, you know, something romantic or something to love in in my career and not just like collecting a paycheck, you know? And yeah, so, and, and then just from traveling so much, you just see things. It's like, and not, you know, I wasn't like going and sailing on a yacht in Europe or something for, for the summer. I was just like, oh, I'll go to the desert in California and like walk around and stuff. And I think... One of the one of the most transformative moments for me, I was um, in um, near the Salton Sea. I, I went and met the guy Leonard Knight, who painted Salvation Mountain. He made that mountain in the desert, mm-hmm. and I was just like, man. I actually walked up on him, and he was asleep on the ground, and I woke him up by accident. And I was just like, whoa, what am I doing? And he's like, do you want to talk about God or do you want to talk about art? And I was like, ah, art, yeah. <laughs> And so he's explaining his technique and building this like cave, you know, these like caves and things that he'd made, like building this mountain out of the desert and painting it and stuff. And he's talking about his painting technique. And he says, I'm like, why did you do this? He's like, oh, you know, it's just, I wasn't really doing anything. And I just, 
felt like I was wasting my life and God spoke to me and here I am. <laughs> He's just like living out in the desert and like making things. And so I think that that was like, that was just this sort of thing that activated that I should just be looking and doing more, you know? And I just got really lucky in, in that I got a um, got accepted into the grad program at Rutgers and got to just think about what I was doing, you know? Because every, everything kind of came out of the love of just, I liked cameras and I liked looking through cameras and just sort of putting together what all that meant for me. The ability to just stand and stare and like revisit things because I just sort of had this connection to revisiting things through looking at family pictures and trying to like figure out who I was and, and stuff like that. So that just became what I do, I guess. Um, it became like a more and a more important part of what I do. So and now the Rutgers program over the last uh, three or four years has really kind of blown up partly through funding, partly like Carol Walker moved over there mm. and more and more. It it was always a school that people talked about, but in terms of even photography and everything else, it's more even more so on the map than I think it was perhaps when you went there. But yeah. did, did you, would you say that, I had a friend who went there for painting back in 2006, so it was even more different then that's my only experience with it but um was it transformative for you i mean what was the program like yeah i mean um even even going there i learned a lot about the history of the place and and some of the faculty that come through there like fluxus more or less started there with like people like jeff Hendricks and and then hearing about like martha rossler and melvin edwards and stuff teaching there and i think david bay was teaching there before i was there and like Latoya Ruby Fraser was working in the gallery, which is insane. She's amazing, but she was working in the gallery at, at Rutgers when I was there. And I'm like, wait, you you're incredible. Uh, anyway, of course, um, Dawood Bay just got the MacArthur too. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. So those two MacArthur fellows you just mentioned. Yeah, mm -hmm. but yeah, just sort of. I mean, it was weird because I kind of. I'll be honest, I kind of fell into it. Like I, I was just you know in this job at Parsons that was had been good to me and I was just like what am I doing I think I, I like broke up with my girlfriend at the time and I was just like you know I had a meltdown and went and hung out in the desert by myself for a couple weeks and went surfing and kind of came back I was like I think I talked to my brother and he, he's like you say good things but you don't do anything good you know <laughs> it's like you have all these ideas and you talk about what you want to do but everything's like up in the clouds He's like, you're, you're, you're at 10,000 feet. Nothing's on the ground for you. What are you doing? And like, why would anyone, he, he said something like, why would anyone want to be in a relation with relationship with you? Cause you have nothing to offer the world. And I was like, fuck, <laughs> this is the older brother. Right? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And I was like, and I couldn't dispute that. I was just like, wow. Okay. So, I mean, I got really lucky and I, I went and visited out there and, and so I met, um, Gary Schneider and, and, who's been Mark, a guest on the show. Yeah, Mark Handelman, who's a, a Columbia grad. He's a wonderful painter. Just met the, the faculty and the community out there and everyone, like people knew, it was weird. Like I went somewhere and people knew my work and I I never, I didn't even feel like I was making any of the work at that time seriously. It's just like something I did for fun. And, you know, Gary goes, oh, you're the guy with the color fields. I love those color fields. Tell me about them. I'm like, uh... I like James Terrell, and, and so that, that was my connection to it. But everyone was, like, so welcoming, and, and I'd visited a few other programs that felt kind of... Um, that was a pretty good Gary Schneider, by the way. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he's, I could keep going. We could just do an hour of Gary Schneider impersonations. But, um, yeah, I'd visited a few other programs in California and, and, and one or two here, and 
I was like, I either want to go to a school that's on the beach, which was UC Irvine, and or I want to go to Rutgers. And and Miranda had, had recommended me to apply, and and everything just worked out. And I, I ended up, you know, I was indecisive and deferred for a year there, and and got lucky to get funding and and everything. And so, you know, I got there, and everyone's. I'd never even like thought about painting and sculpture or anything like that. And I'm surrounded by all these really wonderful people that are, you know, light years ahead of where I was conceptually or creatively. And basically I was just like in the studio. I was like, well, what do I do? And I drove across the country and took pictures and came back and then did it again and then did it again. And, and just sort of had the space to, to have like three really great faculty members in Gary and Miranda and Diane Neumeyer who I refer to as like my parents or uncles or aunts at the same time have become like really close friends as well. But basically it was like me and there's only two first year there was like me and two other photographers. And then the second year there was me and three other photographers. And so we had, you know, three faculty members that were just kind of like down to ride for photography and I was all about it you know some of my friends were dabbling in sculpture and stuff more that had come in as photographers and I was like no I need to figure this out I need to figure out what I'm doing and basically just you know made prints and scanned and shot so many negatives and just kept thinking about what to do with it and um you know like during that time I had some like sort of traumatic family stuff happen like my dad passed away in the first year of grad school and I was like how do I make something of this and like the year before my, my grandfather had passed away and it's like man I, I like went to both of their funerals and was just hearing people talk about the impact that they made on their lives and like I was like okay I gotta like figure this out and I look, look, looked at my grandfather and he was someone who never he was never home he was always out um working with people or helping people like he'd visit he'd like go to church to get the program for someone who couldn't go to church and they would like take them the program, but then take them something to eat and then just like hang out with them. And he'd like do that every day. And I was like, you know, I'm just like going to work and collecting a paycheck. So I have to like step it up or something. And so I, you know, I was really lucky in that way that I could just sort of be in the studio at grad school and just, they gave me the keys to the facilities pretty much. I'm like, have at it, you know? And cause I had, I had experience working in art schools before they kind of helped me. Um, well, they, they like let me, sort of improve things there and work with the students more and and we got we get pretty lucky there it's changed a little bit but when I got there they I think my second day of grad school they put me in front of a photo class and I had to teach and it's like <laughs> all right you know they're like teach darkroom like I haven't even been in the darkroom <laughs> beyond replenishing chemicals for you know at that point it was like 10 years since I'd actually worked mm. in a darkroom they're like teach photography I'm like okay to the undergrads to the undergrads yeah, yeah. I mean, that was amazing. The kids out there are really, they're really special. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it allowed me to, the, the cool thing about the program then, and I think it's still like that, you can kind of go at the pace that you want to. And most of it's just about just make work and have crits. And there wasn't a heavily theory. I mean, it could be like heavily theory driven if you wanted to, depending on which classes you signed up for. But then a lot of it's just like, talking about ideas i mean we had one class with um one of my teachers Adele lister who's um we, we had her video class and most of it would be I, I showed a video of like bowerbirds in australia making these nests and like 
they make these like incredible nests out of just detritus, but it's all color coordinated. And so they make these really elaborate nests that are just absolutely incredible. And we're talking about that. And like, the, like um, we, we like do things like that and watch animal videos, but then talk about video art too. And just like, this is getting so, back to your early impulse to yeah. become a exactly. wildlife uh, yeah. photographer. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or lyre birds that imitate the sounds of chainsaws and oh, things like yeah. that. But you know, so you just find all these different ways to take inspiration from things and, and just sort of have these really, you know, challenging and really difficult moments, but then also these like just fun and, and sort of inspirational moments with, with people who, you know, I've, I've really grown to like love and respect, you know. Um, Does the, the Monuments Are Forever work come out of your grad school years or? Yeah. Um, I, uh, it's something I started, hmm, I guess the, the initial idea of it started uh, summer of 2010. Yeah. And I was, you know, I guess subconsciously was revisiting, revisiting family trips that I'd taken to and for the most part we would do this like drive through tourism where um we'd hop in the car we'd, we'd fly in LA me and my me and my mom and my dad and we'd pick up my nephews and nieces and be like all right we're gonna go to Yellowstone and we'd pile into a car and it's just like motley crew of us and we'd like take two weeks and drive somewhere and drive back or we'd land in LA and drive to Texas overnight um to visit visit family or something like that so I I sort of had this impulse to go back. And I was like, well, I haven't been to Yosemite since I was like 10. So why don't I go there and, and I'll take this camera that I borrowed from work and was just sort of enjoying the spectacle of people. Mm. And sort of, I guess around that time, I'd been with, um, you know, iPhones and digital technology, social media becoming like, you know, really... I guess invasive is the way I look at it. <laughs> but, I, 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 you know, you're like riding on the subway and you take your headphones out and everyone's just silent. It's like, whoa, this is weird. <laughs> and so you're like sort of around these like proxy humans that don't actually move or talk or do anything. And so I was like, man, this is weird. I don't like this. And then went out and then was watching this whole performance of, of people pulling up in front of like, you know, the most beautiful view on earth, like pulling into Yosemite Valley and they get out and they pull out a camera, either their phone or a digital camera, take a picture, put their heads down, walk back to the car and then keep going. And I was like, wow, that's what I did. Interestingly enough, like when I was a little kid and we'd, you know, cause my dad was older, we couldn't go hiking or we couldn't go camping. So we'd, you know, just bounce around from hotels and, and do this like really quick sort of tourism, but we saw a lot, you know? And so I started doing that and you know, I guess your it's dad like, didn't become the uh, rugged outdoor Australian. <laughs> uh, he wanted to. He said he was going to retire and go fishing and sit on the beach, and he never did that. I think he went to the beach like six times, even though he lived across the street from it. But, but yeah, you know. So, I, and in some ways, it was like I remember Tom said to me once. He talked about you know the low hanging fruit of photography. It's like oh, you go to Times Square, and that's just it's just easy, you know. And so I, I I was doing that basically, like doing the easy thing, photographing these landscapes and traveling around, and and that work kind of got me into grad school because um, I guess I was photographing the landscape in this way that was like consider like taking the landscape and sort of showing it as this like constructed environment where people just sort of set up and do things. So they're like big landscape views with like people sort of scattered around through them. And the more I did that, I, I went on a trip right before I started, right before I started grad school and did some more of that. I like 
bought a car in California, flew out there, picked the car up and drove back here. Because that was easier? Yeah, well, yeah. It turns out it was. Yeah, I didn't get yelled at by like a, a Brooklyn car salesman. Okay. I like, met this guy named Wally and he like, I think he picked me up from the airport and was like, hey, here's your car. I was like, cool, this is easy. And everyone was like really nice whereas this guy he yelled at me. He was like, you got to buy this fucking car. Or, you know, it made me feel bad. But anyway. Well, people no, do it also that. because there's no salt on the roads yeah. in California. Yeah, so yeah, if, yeah. unless you're right yeah. at the beach, you get yeah. a car with no rust on yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. After my uh, wife and I first got married, we went out to buy a used car and in Brooklyn. And the first car we looked at, and I'm no exaggeration, no lie, had blood stains on the back seat. Oh, yeah. I believe it. I believe it. Yeah, those wipe right out. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. A little hydrogen peroxide. Take that right out. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I, I like, did this one trip and, you know, my, my, my now wife, we met in L.A. and drove here together and just sort of like... She's really, she's really into food and she runs a restaurant. And, um, so we were, she's like, Oh, I want to go eat at all these places. And then we'll go. She's like, I want to go to Yosemite. And we like went to Yosemite and we went to the Grand Canyon and like, I was like shot all this film doing that. And then the next year, you know, the, the next time I traveled, it was like, you know, maybe a month after my dad had passed away and I'd, I'd been in Australia and I was photographing there. And I was like, basically was like, well, you know, my dad's sick. And so I went down there and took a camera with me. It was like, I just didn't even know it's a photograph. So I'm just like wandering around in the days, just like looking at the ground and like photographing the ground and photographing my neighborhood I grew up in, which I'd never really thought to do. And then he passed away. I did the same thing. And so I made these like really sad photographs of just like, I described them as being pictures of mourning, but not of anybody, just like no one's in the pictures or if, um, anyone was in it was like my mom walking away from me or like shadows and things like that and to the point that I'd show those to my my teachers and some of my classmates and they get really emotional it's like dude these are heavy mm. which I still haven't done anything with those I got to revisit that work but um but that sort of activated this is like oh you know I had this like identity crisis that I'd been having my whole life of like what am I and who am I and where am I and basically the next trip I did I left um, left New York and drove by myself to Texas and and um, basically just decided I was going to go to where my family was from and see what was there and basically tried to apply this way of looking that I'd figured out in the digital camera to just take pictures of whatever, which, you know, looking at minor whites negatives is what he was doing, I guess. But to, um, you know, look at the landscape and be like, well, here I am and what's here and just to you know, being attracted to like formal things like color and light and stuff. And then, um, trying to connect it to this sort of greater search for my identity. And, but then tying that in with these family trips that we'd done. So I was basically like retracing those footsteps and got back and I just had this like different body of work that kind of fit in really well as this, like, this like tourist journal as well. And, you know, so that was like a weird thing to show in grad school. Cause like you show like a color landscape picture and someone's like, Oh, Stephen Shaw. And I was like, I'd love Stephen Shaw, but I was like, no, it, I don't think this is that. That doesn't seem fair because I'm not, I'm not him. I didn't have a grant to do this. I'm not just photographing, you know, formal landscapes or anything. And I, I, you know, so I had these, I'd have these like really awkward crit, crits about the work, and they're like, what is this even? I'm like, I don't know. These are these crits were while you were still a grad student. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. And. Basically, I had a crit with someone, actually with Miranda, and she said, oh, well, she, and she was someone who'd been like, oh, yeah, this looks like Stephen Shaw's pictures. And 
and which is like an insult, I guess. <laughs> if you take color landscapes, it's like you're just copying something. It's really saying you're copying something that's been done already. And I'm like, no, well, the landscape hasn't been done already. It changes every time you go anywhere. And, you know, I'm like obsessing over like you'd see a sign or a tree or something somewhere and then you go back and it's not there. And you're like, wait, did I imagine that? No, I had this picture of it. But, and so she had this realization. She like looked at one, one of my photos and maybe it was next to one of my like morning pictures from Australia. And she goes, oh, well, now that I think about it, you know, Robert Frank and Stephen Shaw and, you know, all these, like, you know, white male photographers that were in their, like, you know, late 20s, early 30s that had, you know, Guggenheim Awards or, or grants to do these trips, they're not you. You're this, like, other person who's from Australia who's looking for their family identity here and, like, doing that is, like, you, you like, go back and forth between being a tourist and being, like, personally connected to everything that you're doing um and i was like oh yeah that is what i'm doing right 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 and then weirdly enough like on the way home from like the second trip no it wasn't the second trip it was like i was driving back from new jersey to come to the city one day and i went past the cemetery and there's this big neon sign that says monuments are forever and i'm like that's the name uh. of the project <laughs> so i've just run with that and so I've, I've been kind of treating it as like it's a funny expression right yeah it's like yeah they're supposed to be aren't they <laughs> yeah <laughs> although in the recent right. uh, political climate no, not they necessarily are, they are a lot more temporary right yes yeah i guess that, i mean that's kind of the way i'm looking at it is like this um this like it's just like everything's temporary and history is temporary mm-hmm. and, and identity is temporary and right. it just changes and stuff. And so that's kind of been my way of looking and I've since done you, another trip. I drove from like here to LA and back by myself and was just like wandering around, you know, probably still mourning and stuff, but just like looking for what America is, I guess. Um, and doing it, you know, I'm like driving across on like the political climate of last year, you know, and I was, the weirdest thing is that I, you know, I drove from here to LA and back. I saw maybe, I didn't see any Make America Great Again hats except in Palm Springs, California. I saw no bumper stickers, hmm. or maybe like two. I saw like two lawn signs. And I'm like, yeah, this, this isn't a thing. Like, you know, I felt very comfortable about it. And then I realized that I'm bouncing around from like Enclave to Enclave and doing very much traveling in the same way that my dad had traveled like in the 40s and 50s when he was in, in, coming out of the army, but then also as a touring musician. And, you know, he was a, a black man traveling with other black men in, the, in segregation and they couldn't go places. And so I'm like, oh, I'm going from like the black side of town to the other black side of town, the yeah, other black side of town, yeah. like staying with family and friends and stuff. And like sort of staying in this, I don't, I think the term bubbles kind of a load of crap, but I'm just like staying within my communities, you know, all these different yeah. communities that I've either come from or that I've sort of created for myself through the, the you know, through, um, well, and mapping the, your father's in, in some ways, I, mean, I don't know how closely it was, but in, in trying to stick to the places that you remember going to and the places you would, you thought he went to, that's, that yeah. makes sense, right? You would yeah. have been in those neighborhoods. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's scary sometimes. Like when, um, when I moved to New York, we actually drove here and, I think I took pictures on that trip. I don't know what the negatives are for that. But um, we were in Jackson, Mississippi, and he freaked out. And I was like, Dad, what's wrong? He's like, Mississippi's not a good place. And I was like, what do you mean? And 
he's just like, I don't want to talk about it. We need to drive to Atlanta. And we'd been driving from Dallas or something and had a trailer on the back of my Toyota Matrix, which was like, <laughs> not really designed for that. I've been driving like 14 hours. Like, no, 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 we'll keep going. I'll drive. It's fine. And, he, you know, he's like 80, how old was he at that point? 83, 84, wow. something like that. And he's like, no, I'll drive to Atlanta. It's fine. <clears throat> Let's get the hell out of Mississippi. Yeah. And we stay, I was like, no, we got a hotel, dad. We can't, it's like, I can't drive for like 20 hours. That's messed up. And and eventually we, we pull up at this hotel in um, Meriden. I think it's Mer- I think it's pronounced Meriden. Meriden, Mississippi, just outside of Jackson. And he's, he was so distressed. Mm. I've never seen him like that. And we pull up and there's like a, actually the hotel is run by an Indian family. He's like, okay, I feel better. Whatever it was. But we, we got two rooms side by side and left the doors open because he was like freaking out. And, and then the next day we hop in the car and we're driving. I'm like, dad, what's wrong? And he's like, well, so, you know, in the, when I was touring, I think with, with uh, Buddy Johnson or Lionel Hampton or one of the bands he was in, they'd stopped in that town or, or between Jackson and Meriden and to get food or try and find somewhere to stay and basically got run out of town by a, a mob oh. um, that like threatened to kill them and you know pointed guns at them and stuff and so they um a white mob yeah 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 and i was like damn and then i thought about it and like reading about you know sort of the history of segregation and civil rights i'm like man it's really not that long ago no it's, it's really really recent and so yeah so and then i sort of realized like in some ways i'm when i'm traveling i'm still avoiding that you know but then looking at this like history of photography, this like history of traveling photography of like you, Stephen Shaw's, you, Joel Stenfeld, sort of realizing how my experience was very different from them. And even like, I think I heard Stephen Shaw talk recently, it was like last year. And um, the interviewer, I think it was, I want to say it was Teji Cole, but I didn't think it was Teji Cole, but asked him about his food photographs and he had this sort of really like snarky response to how bad food was. And I was like, oh, you were going from like, truck stop to right. truck stop and like <laughs> in like hotel to hotel and and you just don't happen to find these like great pictures but it's not like you're doing this like cultural survey of the country and i was like oh that's 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 how i'm different that's like where i fit in and and um so in some ways i'm sort of revisiting things like that and i want to you know some of it's just word of mouth nothing's like written down it's just like something my dad told me or um recently i've been digging around on ancestry.com and looking for trying to find answers to things that I've heard about. Like I heard, I want to photograph trees in Louisiana because I was told that one of my great uncles was lynched and hung from a tree in the, where our family's from. And that's why they left and ended up in Texas. And I was like, well, some, some people in our family know where this is. And I'm like, well, I want to go there and I want to take a picture of this, this tree. And some cousins found out like, you know, basically like, F you, you can't do that. That's messed up. What's wrong with you? And I'm like, oh, so, and part of me is like, well, no, it's important to me. Like, I'm like looking, like searching for, for things here. And so then I was like, well, I'll just go photograph every tree and one of them will be it, right? And then I was digging around Ancestry.com and trying to find out like who this was. Did you, like, did you do the DNA test? Yeah, 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 yeah which is cool. I, mm-hmm. I was really worried it was going to come back and say I was like from England and that's it. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh man, everything, everything's messed up. I'm not even black. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. Uh, yeah, but um, I was like, through that I found 
No, yeah, through that I found, I was trying to figure out which of my great-grandfather's brothers it was that was killed, and then I like found a newspaper article about it that was uh, that's at the Library of Congress, and um, the the abstract terms they sort of used to describe someone being like murdered by a mob, I think he was like 16, he was like a kid, you know? Mm-hmm. And the way it sounds, it's like he was a servant, basically, mm-hmm. so slavery's over, but he's still performing this role of like house house person. And yeah, and so now I know where it is. It's not a tree, it's this bridge that I'd uh-huh. walked over in Louisiana. And I was like, oh, maybe that's why when I said to this, I was like, I was in that town and was just asking questions and people looked at me funny when I said De Blanc, it was just my, my um, grandmother's family's last name. And they're like, don't know. Nope. So people got real cagey when I said that. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why. And so I started like trying to figure out I'm like, well, who, who are the people that killed him? Or like, am I related to that? And then it's like, you, you start like, Oh, maybe I'm related to those people. And then like finding all these weird connections like that, like that. I think the, like the, the slave master who owned my family is probably my grandfather. Could be right. Well, that's what the DNA test says. Right. And then um, like, cause I have this like, they do this genetic community thing that says, yes. oh, yeah, so you're from freed slaves in Louisiana and settlers of central Arkansas, which is funny because when I was uh, traveling with Aaron, uh, we like made work around central Arkansas together, which we'd mm-hmm. have an ongoing thing we're doing. I'm like, well, that's weird because my family's not settlers, but then the ASCII, the, the, this guy who owned my family, uh, was from there. And apparently my great, uh, so I think... My great grand, second great grandmother was the daughter of Askey, Harrison Askey, and she was like maybe Native American, and he had a daughter with her, and then like kept her as a slave. Just mm. <laughs> freaking crazy. I think that's my mm-hmm. deduction because I'm like looking at this DNA map. I'm like, well, that doesn't make sense because I thought this was my family, but then you see these other traces. So it's like certain things. I'm like, oh yeah, that's confirmed because I, I heard that story, but I don't know anything beyond it. Like. It shows that I'm Native American, but it doesn't say what tribe or like right. where. It's just this big circle around the Americas. Yes. And I'm like, yeah. oh, okay. Right. <laughs> another funny, I don't know if it's funny, another coincidence rather that uh, tied our stories together when we were, after we got done with the hilarious Australian YouTube videos, we were talking about Austin, Texas. Mm-hmm. And uh, where my father's family's been from Austin, for quite a while, they had a lot of stuff there. But there's one point where um, we'd been moving from house to house, and my father found this house that was it was actually a fabulous house. It's this amazing, like practically a mansion by uh, certainly by New York standards. Um, but it was on quote unquote the wrong side of the track, wrong side of the highway. Mm-hmm. And uh, <clears throat> one time uh, when someone tried to break into the house, we called the police and the police showed up like an hour and a half later and just told my mother, like, you need to move to back to the other side of the highway. <laughs> yeah. But then I find out that within blocks, that's where your father owned a house. And like, that's where your family was living. Yeah, right? and, my, like, my, my, um... and why was it the wrong side of the tracks? It was like. It's where the poor people were living, and that's where people were. Well, that was the and drugs were, you know, all kinds of things were happening. Yeah, I mean, because that was the that was the side of town that was that um, you know black people and and Mexican American people were confined to. Yeah. From I don't know at what point exactly. I mean, probably you know 
post-slavery pretty much um with jim crow and everything and like a lot of cities you 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 there's and if there's not like a mountain range or they're not on the other side of the valley it's just the highway oh this is where the highway ran well on the highway the highway was built um like right around the end of segregation and was built over the an an african-american neighborhood because basically east austin like came like right up to um like red river street or something like that um you know like pretty close to the capital right mm-hmm. um and this sort of freeway as my one of my cousins described it he's a real estate developer down there um he's like yeah they pretty much built that and elevated it so you can't see east austin so i started photographing that and there's like points where you can't see the city in it and it partially in, in the same way that it has in other cities um like was one of the many contributing things to the sort of decline of the community over there along with drugs and and, yeah. and when i lived there drugs, there were just know? a lot of empty lots too they would just yeah. tear the houses down and leave a leave yeah. just the foundation there. and so you, yeah you know i've read some pretty interesting things and you kind of connect it to this you know greater wave of gentrification that's been happening in the u.s for the you know last 20 30 years you know that inner city those inner city neighborhoods become desirable all of a sudden after everyone left because of you know drugs and crime and stuff now was like oh we want it back and so yeah those empty lots of there's not too many empty lots anymore but all those like really beautiful craftsman houses and stuff have been like torn down and been replaced with like high-rise condos and stuff and and that you know that's that really funny thing now that east austin's like a desirable place to live they want to sink the freeway so it's not this big eyesore so you can see the rest of the city and you're not separated from it um which is pretty crazy but now you know it's like cool to hang out over there it's like the cool side of town um (laughs) but yeah i mean you know i was like walking around the streets though and i was like like visiting my grandparents and we're walking around the streets and i was like you know 10 11 just playing with kids in the neighborhood and stuff it's just like you know, it's weird little, <laughs> uh, questionably ethnic, <laughs> like little kid from Australia and like hanging out with the neighborhood kids and like, you know, it seemed like, I remember hearing gunshots and seeing like clearly seeing like gang members and stuff. And my grandfather would be like, don't go to, don't go to, you know, 12th street in Chicago. That's a bad place. There's a, you know, bad people over there. I'm like, okay, okay, Papa. Yeah. And now obviously it's all changing really rapidly, which is sort of interesting being in New York and witnessing similar changes, you know, where, you know, there's like this array, not only like uh, communities and, and, you know, diversity in neighborhoods being pushed out, but this like erasure of history, you know, and, and people really trying to hang on to just any semblance of, of their, you know, their origins and their stories. But and so that's been kind of as I kind of like wrap all that stuff in with the work that I make mm-hmm. and, and think about that a lot. So, um, the uh, Monuments Are Forever is a zine. Is, is that something you're still putting together and something you sell or something? Uh, I mean, I, I made a PDF and I printed out like a 100-page laser print book of it and like, put a binder clip on it and just like, left it the last time I exhibited that work. Mm-hmm. Um, and the way I've thought about it is that as you know, people go, oh, when are you going to turn into a book? I'm like, when it's... I don't know when it's done. Like, when is it going to be done? I'm like, never. Right. Uh, when I get all my answers. Yeah. So I've kind of thought of it as this like uh, revolving kind of like just like revisiting different pictures in different mm-hmm. places. And then the, there's just the content evolves and changes because there's always something that changes in a landscape or in yeah. a place. You know, there's always a new 
angle for mm -hmm. something to, to look at. And I'm sort of thinking of how I can incorporate, you know, this like constantly shifting and changing history into a series of publications. So like the goal for me is to make like, to make it into volumes or chapters or something that just get put out one-on-one. -on -one. I think I'm like maybe a trip and a half, maybe one more trip away from having something that I could put into one publication All that right. would feel good. And, and you're on uh, Instagram as... Emil Askey. All right. <laughs> E-M-I-L-E-A-S-K-E-Y. Uh, Is that your uh, platform of choice right now? I think I use that more than anything else, mm -hmm. you know? Um, it's weird. Like, I want to quit Facebook so bad. Um, <laughs> but my friends I and I I just can't quit you, man. <laughs> uh, I just have this, like, funny... We have this funny secret group with me and some of my friends back home <laughs> called Sports Bar. Why would you name it? It's not... <laughs> oh, yeah. Hey, whatever. <laughs> we, just talk, we just talk so much crap and just... I don't know. It's it's just and I I love that because I don't get to see those guys that often. So we sort of oh, have this nice. like yeah. it's like the only thing I use it for. Otherwise, I'm yeah. just like scrolling through and it's just depressing. Um, <laughs> I know you can't scroll. Yeah. No, social media is very depressing right now. Very. Yeah. 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 Especially Twitter. Holy cow. Yeah, I never I haven't embraced Twitter. It's too mm -hmm. much. Well, Stephen Shore has a retrospective coming up at MoMA, I think, opening next month. So you should go to the opening, go around and introduce right. yourself. Yeah. I am not Stephen Shore. <laughs> hey, his work looks like mine. His work looks... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thank you very much, Emil. Thanks. Yeah. This has been fun. And everyone should go to Brooklyn and eat at... Otway. O-T-W-A-Y. It's... Uh, my my wife's restaurant that she oh. runs with a wonderful a wonderful chef Claire Wally. It's oh man I I don't know I have that weird thing where I'm like don't don't be like the the doting partner that's like talking about how great your partner stuff is. It's like Why it's not? it's good it's good though. Like I I'm a fan. All right, um, go eat everyone. <laughs> yeah, go eat. All right, bye everyone. Thanks. Bye.